before we dive into tonight's stories written by S.H. Cooper, I want to just mention that she has a new book coming out. There are 22 stories about 22 women, evil, evil women. It's a book called All That's Fair, and it drops on August 14th of this year. I highly, highly suggest picking it up when it comes out. She's an incredibly talented writer and a big supporter of what I do here, so I figure this is the least that I can do. I have two stories from her tonight. If you like what you hear, you will definitely like what's coming out in August. So head down into the description to see all the books she has available right now on Amazon and just support her in general. She's a great writer, great friend. But with that said, let's get right into the first story. I didn't want to tell Dad about the changing room when I first found it. It was down in the basement where I wasn't supposed to be. Dad kept all of his scrap and spare parts from his odd jobs as a town fix-it man down there, and he thought I'd get hurt. It was also where he spent a lot of time and he didn't want me getting underfoot. Forbidding it just made it more enticing, though. I'd sneak down when he was off doing work somewhere, usually mechanical or carpentry, kind of stuff that'd take a few hours. I liked to wander through the piles of junk laid out in a chaotic pattern only he understood and pretend I was some kind of explorer discovering lost treasure. Usually I'd stick close to the stairs in case he came home and I had to run back up real quick. But as I got more and more comfortable I'd go further and further. Dad used the side entrance in the basement on his way to and from work so I always had to keep an ear out for the warning jingle of his keys in case he came home earlier than expected. It was when I was playing one of my make-believe games that I found the changing room. I went as far back as I'd ever had, slithering around old bits of this and that until I hit the back wall. I trailed along it, my fingers sliding through dust and cobwebs when they caught against something. It felt oddly familiar. I frowned while trying to place it and squinted against the gloom. Doorknob. I hadn't known we had another room in the basement. I twisted it, and it turned in my hand. Slowly, my breathing nervous and shallow, I pulled it open. The inside was dark. I groped along the wall, which felt like the same concrete block as the basement itself, until I found a switch. It lit up the room in a fluorescent light, and I gasped. Sheer, colorful fabric like veils decorated the wall. Large pillows with golden tassels were thrown about the floor atop a thick rug. Tropical plants hung in cages from the ceiling. A single-armed chaise lounge covered in red and gold velvet was in the center. I stepped in, mouth hanging open and spun in a circle. It was like something out of my new favorite movie, Aladdin. I jumped on the lounge, rolled around on the pillows, smelled the flowers, only to discover that they were disappointingly fake. I didn't know what this room was, but I never wanted to leave. I'd wished I brought books and snacks so that I could stay there and imagine I was Princess Jasmine in my palace. But Dad would probably be back soon, and I didn't want him catching me in the basement, especially not in this room that he was probably setting up as a surprise for me. 
My ninth birthday was the following month, after all. Gleefully, I sprang up and tried to reorganize the room exactly as I'd found it. I didn't want him to know I'd already found it. I turned the lights off again and slipped out, grinning from ear to ear. If I hadn't found the room by breaking one of Dad's strictest rules, I probably would have had a hard time containing my excitement. I didn't want to get in trouble, though, so I kept my mouth shut and waited for him to tell me about it himself. I didn't dare go back down there, no matter how much I wanted to. There was too much risk that I'd get caught and he'd take it away from me, so I had to play it cool. Days went by, and then weeks, without a single mention of the Jasmine Room. It got harder and harder to keep quiet about it the closer my birthday got. I'd sneak looks at my dad across the dinner table, silently urging him to finally break down and tell me. And then my birthday came. I got a new Barbie from my grandparents, a new shirt with a cartoon polar bear on it from my aunts, and a purple bike with streamers coming out of the handlebars from Dad. No one mentioned the room. I had to spend the whole day pretending I was thrilled with the gifts and my party and cake, but all the while I couldn't stop thinking about the Jasmine room. Disappointed as I was, I had to wait another few days before I could visit it again after Dad had gone to work and Grandma had fallen asleep while watching her afternoon shows. I tiptoed down to the basement and carefully picked my way through where I thought the door was. It was dark back there and took some feeling around, but eventually I found the doorknob again. With a pleased smile, I tugged it open and turned on the light. The jasmine room was gone. Where the plants had been hung, now hung sparkly stars and a moon and fake bushes that had been lined up around a large nest of twigs big enough for me to lie in. Small trees with little birds in them completed the forest scene. Confusion swept through me. If Dad had made this for me, why hadn't he ever shown me the jasmine room? I liked it much better than this outdoor theme he'd chosen. With a disappointed sigh, I closed it off and went back upstairs. That night, I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore. I stood in the entrance to his office, my hands knotted behind my back, and chewed my lip trying to figure out how to bring up the topic to my new playroom. Something up, Peanut? Dad finally asked, looking up from his book. Something up, Peanut? Dad finally asked, looking up from his book. Kind of, I mumbled. He set his book down and waved me in. What's on your mind? You're going to be mad. I am? Uh, how come? Because I did something I'm not supposed to and found something that I think was going to be a surprise. His brow furrowed. Okay. What is it? I know I'm not allowed in the basement, but I went down there. He waited, expression unchanged. I stared down at my feet. I found the room. The room. It wasn't an angry question, or surprised, really. It was mostly amused. I looked up at him and he had his head tilted slightly to one side. Yeah, I continued. The one in the basement with all the Princess Jasmine and Forest stuff? Dad sat back in his chair. Sorry kid, you've lost me. 
You know, I insisted. The one in the back that you were making into a playroom for me? He shook his head. There was no playroom, he said. I told him I'd seen it, not once but twice, and both times it had been different. He had me to describe exactly where the door to the room was, and while I stood at the top of the steps, he went down to the basement to investigate. It was a long few minutes waiting for him to come back up. When he did, he had cobwebs stuck in his dark hair and some dirt streaks across his hands. He hadn't found any door, though. After he washed up, he tucked me into bed. I tried to tell him that there was a door, that the room had changed. It was real, but he dismissed it as a childish fantasy. No more going in the basement, he said firmly. It's dirty and dangerous, and I don't want you making a mess of my things. Got it? If you do it again, there will be serious consequences. Yes, sir, I said meekly. His serious expression relaxed into a sigh, and he kissed my forehead. Good night, Peanut. I love you. He shut my door, leaving me in darkness, but more curious about the changing room than ever before. If he wasn't aware of it, he wasn't changing it, and I had to know what was. I had to bide my time before I was able to go back into the basement. I had to get back there and prove the changing room was real. Work away from home happened to be slow, however, so Dad was down at the basement a lot, working on his own projects. When he was upstairs, he was on high alert and keeping a close eye on my whereabouts. I made sure not to even get too close to the basement door in the kitchen so he didn't think I was going to try and go back down. I wasn't sure if I'd ever get the chance again. Not until Dad came storming up the steps one evening, swearing and clutching one hand to his chest. Call Grandma, he said through clenched teeth. Tell her I'm taking myself to the hospital. I I cut my hand on the circular saw and I think I need stitches. Stay in the living room until she gets here. It'll only be a little while, okay? I nodded numbly, fixated on all the red dripping from his bald fist and sprayed across the front of his shirt. A few minutes later, I was staring out at his pickup from the front window while Grandma assured me that she'd be there in just five minutes. She swept in in three, squeezed me in a tight hug, and quickly cleaned the trail of drops that had followed Dad out to the house, all while telling me he would be fine and home before I knew it. There, all better, she said warmly. How about I make us an early dinner, hmm? Having Grandma bustling around was very reassuring, and I was soon able to shake off the shock of Dad's injury. Thinking about it still made my skin crawl, and I wanted nothing more than to give him a hug, but her constant chatter chased away the worst of it. I sat at the table while she made us pizza bagels for dinner, and we sat in front of the TV to watch some of her evening programs. I'm going to go to the bathroom, I announced, suddenly during a commercial break. It occurred to me that now might be the best and only time that I get to go back into the changing room, and I had to take advantage of it. Okay, Grandma said, holding her plate out to me. Put the dishes in the sink on your way, please. I sprang up happy for a task that would put me in the kitchen. I deposited our plates carefully in the sink, and then crept as quietly as I could to the basement door. A peek out to the living room revealed Grandma's show was back on, and she was engrossed in the storyline. Biting my lip, I opened the door and slipped inside. I skirted my dad's blood on the steps and began inching my way toward the door. 
Knowing it was nighttime made the air in the basement feel heavier, more oppressive, and the familiar shapes of his tools and scattered parts cast long, strange shadows along the floor. Determined not to let my imagination chase me off from proving once and for all that the changing room was real, I scurried toward the back wall. I was almost to the door when I heard it. A faint scratching sound like a mouse scampering across concrete. It was coming from up ahead where the door was. I froze. It kept on a weak, soft scraping sound. Hello? I was surprised I'd been able to find my voice. Surprised more than I'd been able to use it. The scratching stopped. Maybe my first thought had been right. It was just a mouse. That was what I told myself as I made my feet move closer and closer to the door. It was totally silent now. I waited for my eyes to adjust to the deepened black of that back corner and finally made out the doorknob, but as I reached for it, heart pounding in triumphant excitement, another shape hanging above it caught my eye. I pulled my hand back sharply, scared for a moment that it might be a spider hanging from its thread. But it didn't move. And the longer I looked at it, the more I was able to make sense of it. A padlock, left unlocked but hanging in a place so that the door couldn't simply be opened. If Dad said the door didn't exist, why did he need that? With my courage quickly pulling into a chill in the pit of my stomach, I reached up with trembling fingers and pulled the padlock from its spot. It scraped metal on metal, and I let it fall to the ground as I reached for the doorknob. The door was yanked inward, out of my hand. A howling figure scrambled out of the darkness toward me, clawing at me. I screamed and slapped and punched, tearing myself away. It crashed after me, panting and wheezing and reaching. I could hear its heavy footsteps slapping against the concrete floor just behind me. I shrieked for my grandma and threw things from the shelves down between us, but still the thing from the changing room charged after me. Its voice was low and burbling. Help me. Grandma was halfway down the stairs when I leapt at her. She started to ask me what was wrong, looked over my shoulder, and then started dragging me up. I glanced back just long enough to see a flash of matted hair, streaks of red, and wide, wild eyes. I was thrown into the kitchen, and Grandma turned around. Grandma, no! I shouted, and she stared into the basement again. Call 911, she yelled back. Hurry! She closed the door after herself. Dad never got to come back inside the house. The moment he got home, he was placed under arrest by a swarm of officers who responded to my call. The gurney was carried up from the basement. The woman on it, Elena Bellreve, survived. She'd been his latest and last victim. The changing room had never been a playroom for me. It had been one for dad's clients. While I had played upstairs blissfully unaware, dad had constructed a secret soundproof room in our basement. He'd used it for years, crafting sets so that he could film himself torturing and murdering women to his audience's twisted desires. The tapes were mailed out in boxes of junk. An Arabian princess, a forest nymph, 
nurses, schoolgirls, whatever they wanted, he provided. He'd bring them in through the basement entrance at the side of the house in the dead of night, usually while they were drugged or drunk from a night at the bar. After so long and a dozen victims, all societal castaways no one would look for, he'd gotten careless. He thought I was too afraid to go into the basement and no one else was ever down there with him, and he'd stop locking the door between victims. After I found it, he knew he had to move. Elena was meant to be his last in our house, and then he was going to move the show, rent a space, something. He hadn't figured it out yet. I'd put a wrench in his plans for the first time in a long time. And then, Elena fought back. He thought she was mostly dead and decided to get playful. He hadn't expected her to grab the blade, turn it on him, manage to get a good cut of her own. He later said he thought he handled her before he ran out, covered in only half of his own blood. He'd thrown the padlock on as extra precaution, but didn't lock it. He hadn't anticipated how badly Alina wanted to live, or that his daughter was still consumed by the changing room. Now he's waiting to die, trapped, staring at the same four walls, while the knowledge of his inescapable fate slowly crushes him just like all of his victims. Out off the old country road, there's a path that runs through the woods. It cuts across to what passes for downtown around here. The trail itself isn't much to write home about, just some wooden planks laid down to mark its edges and the occasional sign nailed to trees warning people not to wander. There's swamps out here, and all the critters that call them home, and one wrong step might turn you into something supper. But it's not the gators or snakes that keep folks from walking through these woods. Stalker's Road is well known around here. Everyone who's ever been on it says the same. They feel watched when they use it. Followed. A few have said they've heard footsteps creeping through the trees over their shoulders, but that's just mostly embellishment. Everyone knows the broken man is silent. You're never supposed to acknowledge him. Don't even look at him. You'll know he's there, even without peeking. All the hairs on your arms will stand on end, your neck will prickle, your heart will beat harder, faster. You'll feel like running. But the broken man doesn't like it when you run. Few have actually been brave enough to look at him, so reports are scattered and sparse. Some say he's got skin black as coal, others that it's striped crimson and glistening. He's huge, bigger than a man has a right to be, and his arms long and crooked, broken. Still, he drags a tree branch like a club behind him. Worst is his head hanging to one side on a stretched neck. Those who have taken the chance have said if he catches you looking, he raises one gnarled finger and presses it to his lips. Quiet. The tale of the ghostly broken man is one that's passed around more than legend. It's fact. Everyone knows someone who's seen him. 
Over the years, people have added to the story, trying to give him some kind of history or a list of victims, but no one knows for sure who he is or what his body count might be. Whenever someone goes missing, though, he's always a suspect, lurking in the back of the locals' minds. I always hated Stalker's Road ever since I was a kid and started hearing about the broken man. I'd have nightmares about him chasing me, his gait uneven from hobbled legs, his tree branch thumping against the ground. I could see his face so clearly, all gnashing teeth and rolling blood-red eyes. I always woke up before he caught me. Still, I avoided his road, opting instead for the paved street that circled around the woods. It was longer, but it felt safer. It earned me some teasing in my younger years, but when pressed, none of my friends were willing to set foot on the haunted path either. As I got older, the superstition had set so deep that I just kept on keeping away. When I was 19, Darla Shirley vanished. She'd last been seen walking toward Stalker's Road. The police launched an investigation the next day, including a search that ran from the creek up north down to the Lancashire farm. While everyone joined in, hopeful that they'd find the high school sophomore, doubt ran cold and hard through the community. It was a small town, miles from anything, not many places for a girl to get off to. In grim situations like that one, people tried to stay realistic. It was possible she'd run away, despite those who knew her insisting that she had a happy home life. The darker option was that she'd been kidnapped by someone passing through, or worse still, one of our own. But there was a third option no one wanted to consider. But there was a third option one no one wanted to consider too loudly in case it was taken as them making light of the situation. It was suggested in whispers behind hands, never with an earshot of her distraught family. The broken man. Might sound silly to people who didn't grow up in these parts, but to us, it was as serious as the others. Parents were on high alert following the Shirley girl's disappearance. They gave the usual warnings, like to avoid strangers and tell an adult where you're going to be, but even the skeptics added one more, specific to our area. Don't go down Stalker's Road. Most listened. I meant to, too. But things don't always work out the way they ought to. I was working full-time at the convenience store on Maine that year. I'd graduated high school, but hadn't figured out my next step yet, so I was making a little money and sorting myself out. I worked the closing shift mostly, so I'd head down at 1 in the afternoon and lock up a little after 9 at night. It was a pleasant little walk, only about 20 minutes on a good day, and I'd have my walkman playing from door to door. I'd see the occasional neighbor on my way, but mostly it was quiet and I was unbothered. It was a Sunday that day when a car pulled up next to me. 
I ignored it at first, but it trailed along slowly beside me, so I looked over. A man in big aviator sunglasses was leaning over the passenger seat, one hand draped across his wheel, all casual-like. I didn't recognize him and kept my expression neutral, bordering on irritated at his interruption. He smiled and pointed at his ear, so I guess he wanted to ask me something, and I pushed my headphone back just enough to hear him. You sure you should be walking out here by yourself? He asked. I shrugged. It was an overcast day, but nothing that looked like rain. Everyone's pretty upset over that missing girl. Doesn't seem safe for you to be out here on the road alone. I'm fine, I said. No smiling, no wiggle room to make it seem like there was more conversation to be had. No stopping. He didn't take the hint. You going into town? I could give you a lift. No. You sure? It's no trouble. I'm heading that way myself. Positive. Suit yourself, girly. I was more relieved than I expected when he passed and continued around the bend. I slid my headphones back in place with a sigh and picked up the pace a little, for once a tiny bit eager to get to work. His car was idling on the side of the road ahead when I rounded the curve. He was standing behind it, leaned against his trunk with his arms crossed over his chest. That hurry in my step sputtered. You know, I just don't feel right leaving you out here like this. Come on, hop in. I stopped, the gears in my head kicking into life with a nervous jolt. All that was between us was an open road. Off to one side, an empty field, and the other, the opening to... Stalker's Road. What's wrong, girly? You look nervous. He took a step toward me. I was off before I had time to realize my legs were moving down the small slope of the road and into the woods. I heard him skid down the gravel after me, and I cried out, trying to form words, trying to scream for help. Stalker's Road was a narrow dirt that snaked through old trees draped with Spanish moss. My purse strap slipped down my shoulder, dragging the headphones still connected to the Walkman inside of it down with it. I yelped as they caught my hair and tore at them, letting both the headphones and purse fall to the ground. I ran on, unsure what was louder, my frantic heartbeat or his footsteps quickly gaining on me. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a dark shape moving between the trees. And then... All I saw was the ground rushing up to meet me. The man had pounced, sending us both tumbling. I reeked at the dirt, trying to pull myself away, but he grabbed my hair and yanked my head back so far and hard that I couldn't breathe. His knee dug into my lower back. Be a good girl, he panted into my ear. His belt buckle clinked. Little Darla wasn't good. You don't want that to be you, do you? Another movement to our right, missed by the man. My eyes swiveled desperately towards it, hoping it was someone passing through from town, someone who might help. A huge figure, bigger than a man has a right to be, was standing motionless, half hidden behind a tree. Black skin, split with deep, 
wet red thick arms twisted outward at impossible angles a hairless head snapped crookedly to its left its swollen face split into a grin revealing a mouth of broken teeth a strangled sound bubbled from my extended throat the broken man lifted a knotted finger and put it against his lips quiet my attacker flipped me over and I choked on the air that flooded my lungs he was straddling my legs struggling to get my skirt up around my hips but my wide gaze wasn't on him it was on the broken man standing behind him with a tree branch raised the crack of wood against skull was meaty and dull the man on top of me blinked dazed and slumped slightly like his brain hadn't quite realized what had happened to his body the branch went up again this time the man fell sideways and lay face down against the dirt the back of his head looked soft and squishy like a soft boiled egg that had been dropped I scrambled backwards on my elbows and tore my eyes away from him toward the broken man terrified that its club would find me next the broken man stayed where he was staring first down at my attacker and then lifting his gaze to me. The face I'd always imagined, so monstrous and frightening, was disfigured to be sure, covered in bruises and bloody welts, but with those eyes I met mine, warm and deep brown, were all too human. I struggled to stand on watery legs, but when I looked toward the broken man again, the trail was empty. And I was alone. I staggered into town minutes later and collapsed into my boss's arms at the convenience store. The man, Edgar Wright, was pronounced dead at the scene from blunt force trauma to the skull. He lived a few towns over on a few acres, and when his property was searched, Darla Shirley's remains were discovered in a shallow grave on the edge of his land. If you go by the police report... I pushed him off and he hit his head on a rock. If you're local, you know the truth. And I had to know the truth of the broken man. I found it many years later after the internet had become a thing and I had access to research and records that had never been available before. Even then, it took many more months of digging before I uncovered what I was looking for. It came first from a short news article from the 1830s. A blurb celebrating the capture, torture, and hanging of a runaway slave, Elijah Matheson, in my hometown after a long hunt. He was lynched in the woods, where it was said he aided and abetted other fugitives in escaping the law. Searching that name led me to a very different version of that same story. Not much was known about his early life except that Elijah had been enslaved on a plantation about 30 miles south of town. In the summer of 1829, the plantation mysteriously caught fire. In the chaos that followed, many of the slaves fled, including Elijah. He led the group through the wilderness until they discovered a farm marked as a stop on the Underground Railroad. The homeowners gave them shelter and made arrangements to have them moved onto the next station, but Elijah chose to stay. Despite the proximity to his former plantation and the constant danger of being discovered, Elijah started work as a member of the railroad. He'd meet groups in the woods and guide them to safety. He'd maintain a small distance from them, walking beside them, but always keeping trees between them. Should anyone come across them, 
They'd be so focused on the crowd that they'd miss the single man sneaking up from the side with a tree branch held like a club. If anyone attempted to speak to him during the journey between stations, his only response was a finger pressed to his lips. He took more than 50 men, women, and children through his portion of the railroad, a swath of woods that would later become my town and a little path known as Stalker's Road. In February of 1830, the station Elijah worked was betrayed, leading to a raid of the farmhouse by the plantation owner and his men. The elderly husband and wife who owned it were shot, and their lands burned. Elijah's fate, however, was much worse. After using hammers to break his limbs, he was bound and dragged behind two horses through the same woods he'd previously protected so many others in. Not satisfied that he'd suffered enough, the mob took turns beating and whipping him until he was barely recognizable. And then they tightened a noose around his neck. Elijah Matheson was left to hang on the trail as a warning to others. It's unclear what happened to his body after that. By some accounts, he was cut down and buried by other escaped slaves so that he might finally know rest. According to others, he remained there until he rotted away and there was little left of the rope to hold up. While I might never know what happened to his physical remains, I know where his spirit is. Despite the horrors inflicted upon him in life, he remains vigilant, continuing to protect those who seek safe passage through his woods. Everyone has always known him as the broken man, but that's not true. He was beaten. He was scared. He was murdered. But he was never broken. And now I'm going to make sure he gets his name back. <laughs> 